Well, again, it's good to see all of you here this morning. And uh, <clears throat> Eric, I'm so looking forward to working with you and your family and for uh, what you're going to do here uh, for our uh, Iglesia Hispana. And uh, thank you for coming. We uh, thrilled to have you. And I'm thrilled you're here today, too. We're, we're in a series uh, called Step Goals, Walking Daily with Jesus. And, and I don't know what kind of image that's created in your mind. I'll be honest with you. In preparing these sermons and messages, it's kind of created this image of a, well, of this just gentle, kind, gracious walk with Jesus. Uh, when, when I was growing up, we sang a, a hymn called In the Garden. Uh, I mean, it's long been a favorite, especially the generation that is even ahead of me. The, the song lyrics paint this word picture. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me. And he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Now I hear that song, and I feel like I've stepped into a Thomas Kincaid painting of light about some garden, and I find myself thinking of strolling with Jesus through this garden. But I'm telling you, walking with Jesus in this world is anything but a stroll in the garden. The very last garden that Jesus spent any time in was the Garden of Gethsemane. And that wasn't so much a garden as it was the, the last spiritual battlefield of our Lord's earthly ministry. And here's the other thing about that song. It's a beautiful song, but it's not very theologically sound. And it doesn't create a very realistic picture. Because here's the deal. The song makes it sound like that it's just me and the Lord walking through this beautiful place. It's not. Life in this world is not a garden, and we're not walking with Jesus by ourselves. Everybody else that's walking with Jesus is alongside of us, and that's messy. I'm telling you, that means you're walking with him, I'm walking with him. Everybody that we think we are walking with, we're, we're walking with, and, and I, I'll be honest with you this morning, I'm not real keen about walking with all of you in the garden with Jesus. And I know you're not keen about walking in the garden with me either because it gets messy. Our lives, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, our opinions, our, our, our likes, our dislikes. Let's be honest, we don't enjoy everyone that's walking in the garden with Jesus. Amen. See, I get an amen on something like that. All right. <laughs> you were all thinking about it. I just verbalized it for all of us in this room, right? Here's the truth. We wish it was a Thomas Kincaid painting. We wish it wasn't in the garden moment with Jesus. We would be more comfortable with that. But Jesus wouldn't be. Jesus likes the messy. Jesus likes all of us walking together. Because you see, when you walk with Jesus, you have to walk with other sinners. That's just part of the journey. Jesus knew that building intentional loving relationships with people, all people, was the way to change the world. That's one of the reasons life groups is so important is because you start building loving, intentional relationships with other people. Now, in life groups, for the most part, they're already believers. But maybe, maybe out there in your mind, you might start thinking about this <clears throat> whole concept of building a life group with people who aren't believers so that you can build this intentional, loving relationship with them as well. Because Jesus knew that's the way you change the world. Dan Spader wrote, 
It can often be said that people who are concentrating on a focused strategy often pursue their goals to the detriment of their relationships. The remarkable thing about Jesus was that relationships were his strategy. Consequently, one of the more zealous condemnations of Jesus by the religious leaders of his day was simply this. Jesus eats with sinners. Can you believe that? Three different banquets were used to help develop that accusation. The calling of Matthew, <clears throat> the conversion of Zacchaeus, and the dinner at Simon's house where a woman with a less than positive reputation anointed the feet of Jesus, wept and cleaned his feet with her tears and dried them with the hair on her head. The Gospels twice, Jesus is accused of being a friend of sinners. Eats with sinners, friend with sinners. Now for us, that's an endearing picture. Those are wonderful qualities, <clears throat> but not in Jesus' day. Jesus was so unconven unconventional in his approach that what he does and the accusations that were brought against him gives us a glimpse into who we are to be. Uh, I like what Barbara Johnson wrote. She said, <clears throat> never let a problem to be solved become more important than a person to be loved. So, in light of all that, let me take you to the first instance where Jesus is accused of eating with sinners. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and following. And this is the, this is the chapter where Matthew himself becomes an, an apostle. Verse 9 begins, As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, now let's just explore this event for, for a couple moments this morning, all right? Uh, first, take a look at this follow me invitation. This is big stuff. This is not a casual introduction to Matthew. But this time... Jesus has multitudes of disciples. Lots of people are following him. But out of the multitude of disciples, he calls these 12. Now, disciples are those who are learning and following and emulating Jesus. In that sense, all of us in this room who have chosen to do the same thing are his disciples still today. Learning, following, emulating his words and his example. But Jesus carved out of this group of disciples 12 men who would carry on the work in a unique way. They were to become apostles. The word apostle is the same word as missionary. It means one who is sent. It is this word ambassador. An ambassador was one who spoke on behalf of the king to the people who needed to hear what the king had to say. And notice again, he did not choose well-known or famous apostles. James and John were likely cousins of Jesus on his mother's side. 
New Testament scholar Alfred Edersheim suggests that James the Less, Simon the Zealot, and Thaddeus appear to be brothers and that they may have been cousins on Joseph's side. Judas Iscariot is the single apostle who was not faithful to Jesus until death. He seems to be the outsider. He's the only apostle, by the way, that does not come from Galilee. He comes from Judea. Now, there's a mixture in this group of 12, okay? Uh, You you have, I think, some who are are fairly well off. Peter, Andrew, James, and John had a very successful uh, fishing business. As a matter of fact, when they became apostles, their business carried on with those who were their uh, employees because after the Lord's resurrection, they'd already gone back to the fishing business. And the Bible would suggest that Peter had two homes, one in Capernaum and the other one in Bethsaida. You don't own two homes unless you're doing fairly well. So I would say they were at least middle class, if not upper class to a certain degree from that standpoint of view. And then you have some on the apostles who are are not so well off. So you have the haves and the have-nots. You know what that does in a tight-knit group. That creates a little bit of, well, contention. To add to that, by the way, Matthew would have been a part of the haves because as a tax collector, he would have been doing all right. We know that from culture in that day and time. Add to that, Jesus chose a man, Simon, who is always called the Zealot. Do you notice that? All right, that was to distinguish him, I guess, from Simon, who was also called Peter. But Zealot tells us a whole lot about him. Simon the Zealot. There was a group of Jewish people who were basically hired assassins. They had joined this group, uh, the Zealots, and they employed guerrilla warfare tactics, and their one reason for living was to assassinate Roman soldiers, Roman Roman, uh, diplomats, Roman leadership, Roman government officials, and Jewish traitors to the Roman cause. Who'd Matthew work for as a tax collector? He worked for the Romans. Nobody was seen in Jewish culture like like a turncoat, like a tax collector. So here you've got Matthew the tax collector working for the Romans, and you've got Simon the zealot whose sworn cause is to put to death any turncoat serving the Romans. Now, now folks, that is like having a benevolent organization and asking an ISIS jihadist and a member of the Israeli intelligence to serve on the board of your benevolence organization. Who would do that? But you see, in this group of 12, this messy group of 12, this sinful group of 12, you have the makings of the church and the future of God's plan for all history. And it worked. It worked. It worked because only in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, can you find peace and harmony. There's a lot that we can learn from this. I don't believe that we're ever going to experience peace in this world until we can come to peace through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can give us that kind of an opportunity. Hatred and terrorism are in opposition to everything that Jesus stood for. Paul writes, I like what Paul writes in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We don't have to agree on every opinion to be able to work together and walk together with Jesus. We don't all have to share the same opinions 
to be able to walk together and work together with Jesus. I like how Max Lucado puts it. A man does not have to be my twin to be my brother. It's also worth noting that Jesus did all of this with ordinary people. There was nothing unique, glorious, or stand out among these guys that he chose. He picked ordinary men as his apostles. So when you say, I'm just an ordinary person, I can't do anything in the body of Christ. I have nothing to offer to the kingdom of God. <laughs> you just remember, you're going to meet Peter, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, Matthew, Simon, the Zealot, Thaddeus, and all the rest. One of these days when you get home to glory, are you going to feel comfortable saying, I was ordinary. I didn't do anything. These were ordinary men who walked with Jesus, who became extraordinary leaders, who changed their world. Now, minus Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, the rest of these men gave their lives and their futures to establish the church for all ages. And I'll tell you this, too. I'm really glad that Jesus didn't choose a successor, a single person, and then allowed that single person to do, to do all the writing. Because here's the, here's the deal. When you have one person who writes the whole thing, then your mind begins to wonder, okay, did, is this really God working through this one person, or did this guy start fabricating some things as he wrote? No, you had 12 apostles. Then you add Matthias, and you add the apostle Paul. All these who are preaching and teaching. Can I tell you, that builds accountability. If one of those 12 had gotten out of line, the rest of them would have said, whoa, Matthew, what are you writing that for? That didn't happen that way. Matthew, come on, come on. We know that God inspired his word, but having, having these and other writers do this made all the difference in the world. We have credibility for what the word of God contains because these men saw to it that the story as Jesus had presented it remained faithful. What's more, you have all of these men giving their lives a martyr's death. Now, James was the first. John was the last. John didn't die a martyr's death. He died of old age, but he had been sent to the Isle of Patmos, which was a penal colony. It was a desolate island. It was there on that island that God revealed to him the book of Revelation. But all the rest died horribly. Now, now, we don't know from the scriptures, but we do know from tradition and history. And this is what we learn. Andrew was crucified on a cross shaped like an X in Greece. Bartholomew was flayed to death in Armenia. James the Less is buried in Spain. Matthew was cut down by the sword in Ethiopia. Peter was crucified in Rome upside down at his request, feeling unworthy to be crucified like his Lord. Philip was hanged from a pillar in Turkey. Simon the assassin was sawn in two in Egypt. Thaddeus was martyred in Armenia. Thomas was pierced through with a lance in India. Matthias, the one chosen to take Judas Iscariot's place, was both stoned and beheaded in Turkey. Paul was beheaded in Rome and John John suffered on the Isle of Patmos. These legends are traditions that are agreed by most historians that the apostles died. Now, they may not have died exactly like some of the legends and traditions state, but we do know they all died martyrs' death. And here's the thing. People do not die for what they know is a lie. 
So you got all of these men who walked with Jesus in the messiness of their relationships, who give their lives for what they believed, taught, and wrote. That tells me that what we have today is the truth that God wants us to have. But, but here's, here's the point for us. If the apostles and literally millions of Christians have been willing to die for this faith through the ages, shouldn't we be willing to live for our faith with as much passion and commitment? Shouldn't we, ordinary people, live extraordinary lives? Shouldn't we think like everyday missionaries to the world that is around us? Shouldn't we be willing to walk with other sinners if they too are walking with Jesus? Notice also that when Jesus was invited, he went willingly into Matthew's home for a dinner in his honor. And you say, what's the big deal about that? I mean, you tell me that there's going to be free food and it's going to be in my honor and I'm going to say when and where. I'll be there. We, we just, I mean, that's just the way we are. But boy, in that day and time, a party like this at the place where it was with the people who were going to be there, you see, for us, eating out or eating together is, well, it's sort of like a form of entertainment. We do it with friends, but you sometimes are in, in areas where you're not with a friend and you still enjoy the, the moment. You think nothing more about it. It's a good evening. You eat out. You eat in somebody's home. Nice, nice thing. Oh, it's so much deeper than that in Scripture. You got to understand that when somebody was invited to eat in a home, that, well, that was a sign, first of all, of honor that was not bestowed on most. Sometimes it was an offering of peace. Sometimes it was a suggestion of trust. I trust you enough to ask you into my home to eat with me. Sometimes it was a sign of forgiveness. You were included into that home to show that forgiveness had been extended. It was far more significant than merely a social event. It was a bonding moment. Our Lord's willingness to sit down and eat with such a sordid group flew in the face of of acceptable Pharisaic standards of behavior. The ancient world found great symbolism in eating together at the table. It was considered the most solemn and intimate of social relationships. It, and here's the thing, if you ate with someone, there was commonality, oneness of agreement, and, and joy around the table. There was social standing. You only ate with people who were of equal social standing. You never broke that rule. So when Jesus stooped to eat with what the Pharisees called this group of sinners, it not only undermined the whole code of social standing, it made a powerful statement about how gracious and merciful our God really is. So what's Jesus teaching us? Well, here's one thing he's teaching, and that is everyone we encounter throughout life is loved by God, and we're not too good to associate with whoever is loved by God. Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And aren't you glad? Because if he didn't, we'd be left out in the cold because we too are all sinners. I think we need to understand in this context how the word sinner is being used. Jesus didn't call them that. The Pharisees did. 
to call someone a sinner was to mean they had, well, broken the law of God. Now, we would agree with that. To break the law of God is, is sinful behavior. But it, they took it a step farther. And that was when, when you associate with somebody that has been known to break the law, if you sit down at a table with them, you're going to walk away from that table just as guilty and just as impure as they are. In other words, guilt by association. So if, if you don't have the best of reputations and I sit down with you and eat at the same table with you, then I'm going to walk away with a bad reputation. If my reputation is not what it ought to be and you sit down with me, you're going to walk away with that same guilty kind of reputation. That's the way it was back then. It's not that way today. Jesus said, it's not that way now. You associate with everybody. And while he never said they were sinners, they were. Everybody has sinned. What Jesus was fighting against was the us versus them mentality. Remember this, Jesus maintained his lines of moral behavior. Jesus never crossed over and, and did the wrong things when associating with people who practiced those things. As a matter of fact, Jesus holds us to a higher standard of living and behavior than anybody else. But that doesn't mean you you keep the line drawn, that you keep your safe distance. That doesn't mean that you don't associate with me. How else were they supposed to get to know who Jesus was unless Jesus spent time with them? You understand his point. So what's that mean for us? It means that we have to stop viewing the rest of the world as us versus them. We are all a part of the walking dead. We have found life in Christ. There are others of the walking dead who are still waiting for somebody to come and show them Jesus. See, we're all, we're all in this boat together. It is all one messy group as we walk with Jesus. I'm back to the theme, think like everyday missionaries. Wherever you go, just remember, you are among a group of people who need to know Jesus Christ. Treat others as the Lord has treated and accepted you. It doesn't mean that by being loving, kind, and gracious that you approve what God has already said is sinful or wrong. It just means that you're extending to others the grace and the mercy that was extended to you by the Lord himself so they will see Jesus in you. I'm always amazed how oblivious we can be to the simple but profound principle that we need to meet the needs of others around us. Just open your eyes to the spiritual needs around you, and be Jesus to other people. I mean, we're walking together in this messy group. We're walking with other sinners as we walk with Jesus. So open your eyes, open your ears, open your heart, open your thoughts so that others will find Jesus in you. Don't miss the point. John Carlson relates a rather lousy experience in a restaurant that he had. It was a nice restaurant, but the, the problem was with the, the, the waitress. She came back to the table after the meal had been served, and she said, is everything okay? To which John said, no. He said, the chicken is so tough, I can't cut it with a knife. And she said, I'm so sorry. I'll go get you another knife. <laughs> that missed the point. It wasn't about the knife. It was about the lousy chicken. The Pharisees missed the point. It wasn't the fact that these other people were so bad. It was the fact that you cannot walk together through this life with Jesus if you don't walk through this life together with messy others. So how do I practice what Jesus modeled? 
Well, I can't think of a better passage, honestly, than the one I referred to a little bit ago, and we only read one verse. Uh, But Romans 12, beginning verse 9, is this beautiful passage, and it begins with the words, love must be sincere. (laughs) In one of the early Peanuts comic strips, Charlie Brown says to Violet, he says, I'm depressed because I feel like you don't love me anymore. And Violet says, I never did love you, Charlie Brown. Love must be sincere. I think that's the the, the theme. And then Paul goes on to write by saying, do you want to know how love is sincere? Then here is how love is sincere. Let, Let me just read this passage. Follow along on the screen. It's beautiful. Romans 12, 9. Very practical. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Doesn't say hate who. It says hate what. Be devoted to one another out of brother, in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Kind of makes you wonder if Paul's thinking about this event in the life of Christ when he writes these words. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Here's that verse we read earlier. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written. It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now mark this passage in your Bible or on your tablet or in your phone, wherever you... Go to the word of God because on the days when you're saying, okay, how how do I act here in this moment? I'm I'm walking with some, some other people that I'm not sure how I'm supposed to respond. Just go back and read this. Folks, this does not take explanation. I don't need to go through each one of these and explain it. We just need to apply it. Who doesn't understand what it means to honor someone else above yourself? I don't have to explain, don't take revenge, don't be vengeful. We know what that means. These are not easy to do. Easy to understand. They're just not easy to do. When was the last time you practiced hospitality? Some of us may be out of the practice of practicing hospitality. It's not the understanding. It's the doing that matters. God knows your heart, but nobody else does. You see, when we're walking together, this messy group walking together with Jesus, the Lord knows every heart that that is in the group. But I don't. I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. We can only figure out who we are by watching one another's actions. Motives are hidden, but actions speak clearly. That's why Jesus had so much to say about the doing. His message contains action words. Go the second mile. Turn the other cheek. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Help the needy. And on it goes. Action words. The doing of these things is the speaking of our faith so that others can see. 
Do not lose heart or your zeal for the Lord. Keep your spiritual fervor high, Paul writes, and be joyful in hope. Don't you love that? Be joyful in our hope. A little boy stood at the bottom of an escalator. And he's staring intently at the black rubber rail that goes around, just keeps going around. And, and a clerk there in the department store watched him. And she thought, he must be lost. There's something wrong. And so she walked over to him and said, are you lost? Is everything okay? And he said, oh yeah, I'm, no, I'm not lost. Everything's fine. He said, I'm just waiting for my chewing gum to come back. <laughs> That's hope. There's the anticipation that the good stuff is going to happen again. Can I remind you that in this messy walk that we have, when we walk with other sinners as we walk with Jesus, the one way to get through all that is just to keep your eyes looking up. Because Jesus, too, has promised to return. And that's our hope. And when he comes back, all the things, all the mess, all the stuff that we didn't like will be okay. Because you see, if it, the one thing we can show to the world that nobody else can show to the world is how you get along when you differ in opinions and tastes and likes and dislikes, but we're all one in Jesus. And so if I'm gonna walk with Jesus, I gotta walk with other sinners and they gotta walk with me. And it may be messy, but it's the best way I know to give the world the look that they really need. So until he comes, until he returns, just keep being the Christian who reflects Jesus in this messy walk. You know this understanding of what it means in the New Testament to sit down and eat with somebody gives really new insight into this passage in Revelation. Understanding that, that eating together in the New Testament was one of the most intimate social relationships you could share just makes this verse explode with meaning. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus is speaking. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, are you ready for this? I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is the ultimate meal of reconciliation. Oh, folks, at the end of our journey, when our walk in this world is complete, we have, an, have even more to look forward to. You see, Jesus invites us into an intimate spiritual relationship with him, celebrated by a meal that will last forever.